Welcome to the DTB podcast for January 2018, volume 56, number one. My name is David Fizakli. I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, uh, DTB editor-in-chief. So we begin 2018 with an editorial on a topic that may well be in many people's minds at the moment, how to lose weight. So why have we chosen to write about the management of obesity? So uh, a couple of reasons we've been looking back, obviously, over 2017 and realised that we've had two new drug launches uh, for obesity in the UK, liraglutide and naltrexone bupropion combination. And we just reviewed that and also just looking at the history of obesity drugs and, and how well they've done over the last 40 or 50 years of DTB. So we looked back at a very early DTB, which seemed to suggest that actually there was no easy shortcut to uh, weight loss and management of BC. It takes time, effort and support. But we also picked up the review of those drugs for obesity and how many have been withdrawn over the last 50 so years? So we've had uh, 25 anti-obesity drugs withdrawn, um, the most recent being subutramine and Rimonabant in the UK. So 25 over 50 or so years. And for much of that time, we've just had in the UK one drug available. All of that, as you say, we've now been joined by, by two others. But really, how effective are drug interventions? Well, it's like like so much in medicine. So you have the studies, the studies are often short term, they demonstrate a reduction in weight, perhaps 5%, perhaps even 10%. But very often, if you look then for long term outcomes, you can't find anything either regarding whether the weight has stayed off, or whether there have been any actual health benefits from that weight loss in the form of either death or comorbidity rates. So turning to the other side of the equation, and if we're not going to use drugs, we're going to use lifestyle support and other interventions. How good is the evidence for those? So we, this, is the, this is the disappointing bit, of course. I mean, ever since the Mr. Fit study back in the 1970s, I think it was, we, lifestyle studies have been similarly beset by often very poor outcomes and you know, lacking any long-term morbidity or mortality benefits. So no real difference in the kind of quality of evidence for either drugs or lifestyle in interventions, but the one crucial difference... Yeah, so we, we, we spoke a lot about this, didn't we? Because I think what we felt was that actually there is a difference between medication, which perhaps disempowers you as a person. It, it, you know, you're looking outside for the answer. It also, I think, disempowers communities, whereas I think lifestyle approaches often have very few harms that one can really demonstrate but actually also have many benefits outside medicine they often create engagement um, investment in communities locally all those sorts of things and, and those sorts of benefits not only benefit people whose BMI may be above a, a certain rate that someone has fixed in sand but also to people in general. So time to really put in perspective all those claims of a, of a magic pill to solve this problem it really isn't the answer. Yes, there's no, no magic pill um, in the management of obesity. Okay, thank you very much. So our first main article reviews a new product that's been licensed for the management of hyperkalemia. So how much of a problem is hyperkalemia? So this is interesting. I mean, we've, we've spoken about hyperkalemia this year, particularly around the MHRA warning on spironolactone and the consequences of, of hyperkalemia in patients with heart failure. So this is something which we have touched on. It's 
in itself not often a problem. About uh, 1% of the population have uh, hyperkalemia. But uh, what we're really concentrating here on is patients who develop hyperkalemia because of chronic kidney disease um, or who taking a renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system antagonist. And by that, we're talking about ACE inhibitors, ARBs, renin inhibitors, and the aldosterone antagonists such as spironolactone. So the group of patients for whom treatment with one of those is quite important often end up not being able to continue partly because of hyperkalemia? Yes, I mean, this is, I think, particularly the case in heart failure. Very often we are limited particularly on the use of spironolactone, which, of course, because of the RAL study, which demonstrated a 30% reduction in mortality in patients with heart failure who were taking spironolactone. Um, you know, we're keen to use this drug, and yet so often in, in general practice use, you find that, that you are limited because these patients very quickly develop hyperkalemia. So up to now, what's been the therapeutic approach or management of hyperkalemia? Well, there hasn't been a therapeutic option unless, of course, you've been having regular dialysis or you've got severe oliguria and or anuria. And those patients, the cation exchange resins, the sodium and calcium polystyrene sulfonates have been available, um, calcium rosonium and rosonium A. But they've had a very, very narrow therapeutic window in which they can be used. And associated with some serious gastrointestinal adverse effects, so not widespread use. What's the new product? So the new product is a polymer, cation exchange polymer, um, calcium sorbitol, pteromer calcium sorbitol. And this is interesting because this was licensed in July 2017. And unlike the other two resins, this is just simply licensed for the management of hyperkalemia. So you don't have any of the stringent other aspects to the license that require you to um, have to only use it in very certain situations. Like the others, it's exchange resin. How is it taken? So, yes, so Paterima comes in a sachet, needs to simply be added to 80 mils of water and mixed and taken once a day. And have to be separated from any other tablets? Yes, that's right. So when they were doing some of the studies, they found that certain drugs, particularly things like uh, thyroxin and metformin, were absorbed by this polymer. And therefore, the licensing SPC, sorry, you know, suggests you should have at least a three-hour separation between taking patiroma and any other drugs. So for the evidence for them, I suppose questions are what population were they studied in and how much potassium lowering did it produce? Yes, yeah, so the study uh, which looked at its eff effectiveness was a study involving 237 people who had CKD and they had been on medication which might in cause potassium, you know, the, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system antagonists. So they were on those treatments, had to be on those treatments for 28 days at a stable state. And these patients came into the study with potassiums between 5.1 and 6.5. And uh, four weeks down the line, having had a dose of patiroma, which was related to the potassium they had at the start, 76% of these patients had achieved a reduction to a potassium within 3.8 and 5.1 millimoles. So uh, almost, well over three quarters of them had achieved that target with a mean reduction of potassium of about one millimole per litre. Then after that, 
there was a second phase. Yeah, so they then took patients in the study and then they were randomised to pterima or placebo for a further eight weeks. And what they found, which is probably no surprise, is that those that were shifted to the placebo saw an increase in their potassium, a mean increase of about 0.72 millimoles per litre. And those that had stayed on the pterima um, resin had no change in their potassium. Uh, any major problems, adverse effects? So, as you might imagine, GI upset is not uncommon. These patients, about, I think, 5-6% had constipation. Hypomagnesinemia, obviously, uh, can be an issue with these patients because the resin absorbs magnesium as well as potassium. And if you look at the studies, about 10% of patients stopped it during the study um, because of adverse effects. So the big question is, it's now got a broader license than any of the other treatments. Is this something we should be rushing to treat all our patients who are on drugs affecting the renin angiotensin system, or are we more cautious than that? It's going to be fascinating to see what happens here. This drug is expensive. It's £280 a month. So, you know, this is not going to be for everyone. And I personally, the, the idea of managing a patient who develops hyperkalemia on spironolactone or on their ACE inhibitor by giving them an exchange resin chronically long term is something which I'm not going to be doing anytime soon without uh, full understanding from a cardiologist. I mean, I think they're going to be the ones perhaps looking after patients with heart failure who are going to start to perhaps introduce this and we'll get some understanding of how it works from that. And of course, perhaps just finally worth reflecting on the fact that it's not just the hyperkalemia that stops us using these treatments. Well, this is the issue, isn't it? I mean, the hyperkalemia may just be a flag that this drug is upsetting the patient's renin-angiotensin system. So the concept that you can just ditch the potassium and hope everything else will be okay is one that is yet, I think, really to be demonstrated. Okay, thank you very much. And our final article this month reviews the management of gout. It's over 10 years since our last major review of, of gout. So why have we picked this one again? Yes, it's really because we've had a number of guidelines just recently published in 2017. The British Society of uh, Rheumatology and the European League Against Rheumatism have both published guidelines. And they don't agree in many areas. Um, so we thought it'd be quite useful just to, to give an overview of the issues with gout, particularly around the acute management of an attack and also perhaps the area which, which causes perhaps the most interest currently is the use of urate-reducing medication to prevent attacks. So if you just pick one issue just to focus on, what's the key message? For me, the, the key message is around allopurinol. The thing I learnt was that half of all patients on allopurinol 300 will not ha see their urate reduced to target, which is 360 micromoles per litre in most of the guidelines. Now, I think, you know, I come from a time when patients were either on 100 milligrams of allopurinol if they had a bit of renal disorder or 300 milligrams. And yet what I've got to go away from this article and realise is that many of my patients perhaps should be on more allopurinol than 300 milligrams. And also, I need to be that much more careful with my patients with chronic kidney disease. And we do a, a very useful table on the sort of level that we should be starting and continuing patients on with allopurinol if they have significant renal disease. 
and the bigger issue of who should be on long-term urate-lowering therapy, we'll leave you to read in the article. Uh, absolutely, yes. Okay, thank you very much. To read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please email dtb at bmj.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.